Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Everything you do is making an impact in this world. This is not an elitist issue. This is a quality of life issue. How dare you? And I feel like it's my responsibility as a human being. So what? The world is at stake. What, like it's hard? Hey y'all, welcome back to Eco Chic. My name is Laura. It is so nice to be hanging out with you today. I'm excited to have you here for a juicy call-in episode. I love a Chic Shots. I love talking to y'all. I love getting your perspectives on different topics within environmentalism. And today's was a really, really good collection of speakers. We always have a good collection of speakers, so I don't mean to water down past Chic Chats episodes. But if you're new around here, if you've never listened in before, Chic Shots are opportunities for listeners to call in. We talk for about 5-10 minutes about a central topic that the episodes are based around. So in the past, we have done a couple of episodes on careers, family, culture, and how all of these different topics intersect with sustainability and sustainable lifestyles. Our very first one was even on dating, and that was a lot of fun. So today we are talking about LGBTQ plus environmentalism pride and environmentalism, queer sustainability. So a really fascinating topic because it is an entire culture that has plenty of perspectives and plenty of viewpoints and personalities within it. So I feel like each of our speakers today really brings something special and different and ultra valuable to the table. We are hearing from four friends of the pod today. We are hearing from Isaiah Hernandez, who is a good friend of mine, and you may know him online as Queer Brown Vegan. Isaiah has been on the show before. We had an episode together, 137, that I will go ahead and link in the show notes if you want to listen to it. We talked about white veganism and accountability and unlearning and influencer culture online. Today, Isaiah is talking about queer sustainability and kind of breaking down the framework behind queer sustainability and what true sustainability looks like, not just in the queer community, but for all people. I love Isaiah's. Like I said, we have really become friends, but also I just love listening to the breakdown, the metaphors, the explanations. Isaiah's is just really, really good at what he does. And I will go ahead and link the previous episode down below. And I'm excited for y'all to listen to him today. We are then hearing from my personal friend, Emerald. Full disclosure, usually these episodes are all people that I've never spoken to before and they're all listeners. And Emerald is a very good friend of mine. She was actually on one of the very first early episodes of the pod, which I sometimes allude to as like my practice episodes where I was really getting my footing and learning how to ask questions. And Emerald is a really good friend of mine that I've had for years. Emerald is speaking about communities, hiking communities, her rock climbing community, and what it means to be truly accepted by your communities. So I love her perspective. And I'm really excited for y'all to listen to her kind of break down what it means to be establishing yourself in a circle and creating a safe space. We're then talking to Izzy. Izzy, I met after reading her piece through Fashion Revolution called Who Made My Pride Merch. And that's what Izzy is breaking down for us today. I'm going to go ahead and link the article in the show notes so that y'all can listen to it. But if you've listened to the show before, I love talking about ethics and garment workers and what it means to be a conscious consumer. And Izzy really takes it one step further to discuss the ethics of pride merch. What does it mean to be inclusive from a corporate perspective? What does it mean to be a really conscious consumer 
in making sure that the garment workers involved in your Pride merch are being treated with the utmost respect that all garment workers should be treated with anyway. So Izzy breaks down ethics, discrimination, what to be looking for, corporate commitments to allyship and everything around that really fascinating conversation there too. And then lastly, we are hearing from Jackson. Jackson is a longtime friend of the pod listener, and we're breaking down identity and what identity means to Jackson. He's breaking down what it means to be yourself and what it also means to kind of make sure that you're not being tokenized and establish yourself as your own individual person outside of a queer identity, but also how to make sure that you are accepting other people for what you are. He gives some great tips at the end of what to do when someone comes out to you. And all around a really great breakdown of what it means to be truly yourself, establishing yourself in a space, in a career, in a community, while also being out and proud. So all around really great listeners, really great conversations, and all very, very different conversations, which I really loved about this episode as well. I feel like that's kind of the way that Chic Chats always end up because the whole point is to showcase your viewpoints and your ideas and your thoughts and feelings about a certain topic. But I feel like this was one that was so widely encompassing that we could have had, you know, 15 more conversations and they all would have been totally different. So I hope you enjoy it. Like I said, I really, really loved putting it together. I loved hearing from all of these speakers and I really appreciate them. This is a sensitive topic. And I appreciate transparency and willingness to teach me. And if I've learned anything in the last year, it's that allyship in any space is a constant journey. You're never a perfect ally. It's all about learning and unlearning and making space for viewpoints that are different from your own. So I'm really thankful for the opportunity to speak to these four individuals. And I'm really thankful for the opportunity to share it with y'all because I think that you'll enjoy it a lot as well and get a lot out of it. So With that, if you want to chat, tell me a little bit about the episode, what you liked, what you want to hear about next. You can reach me on social at Eco Chic Podcast. You can also rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts if you're already here. You can follow it on Spotify. And I will always have my links down in the show notes. And like I said, I'm also going to be linking some previous episodes and that article who made my pride merch in the show notes. So if you're ever looking for any like research or stats or anything like that in any of my episodes, you can always check the show notes if you're looking for a little bit more. With that, thank you so, so much for tuning in. Thanks for participating in these episodes. Thanks for sharing with your friends and your group chat and sharing it on your Instagram story. It's always nice to continue creating community with y'all. So let's get into it. I hope you enjoyed today's episode all about pride and environmentalism, LGBTQ plus experiences in the sustainability space. Enjoy. Isaiah, thanks for joining me again. It's always good to have you here. Yeah, no, thank you so much again for having me. It's truly an honor. Thank you. Well, first of all, tell me where you're calling from. Yeah, I'm currently calling from Land in Los Angeles, California. Thank you. Thank you. It's always so good to connect with you. I would love to talk to you a little bit today about queer sustainability. Mm-hmm. You shared an infographic that I loved, and I would love to hear a little bit about your take on inclusivity and the LGBTQA plus community and uh, environmentalism. Yeah, definitely. Well, yeah, for starters, I would say that queer sustainability um, is more of a framework and circular relationship that seeks for individuals, both humans and non-human animals, to exist in multidimensional spaces and to fight and liberate those who are currently facing violence, seeking refuge and reimagining themselves in community safety spaces. And when I present multidimensional spaces, I really think about outside the binary thinking, this heteronormative world that we're often presented of like you're either straight or you're not straight or you're either good or bad. And so in queer sustainability, it really focuses on building these safe dimension spaces that really create more circular relationships to purge out or to remediate toxic environmental pollutants that come from both internal and external places, whether it's your home environment, right, ecological impacts, or whether it be societal facts of like um, homophobia, transphobia, biphobia, And so I think, you know, toxic masculinity, this binary thinking, heteronormativity have 
essentially contributed to unbalanced ecosystems. And so with queer sustainability that stems from indigenous cultural knowledge and wisdom, it kind of seeks to create resiliency, safety, and abundance for all living species. And so queer values and environmental values are really closely intertwined to the fight against oppressive systems. And this is because um, for so long, a lot of the times we've erased a lot of queer narratives and it almost seems like the only natural thing for animals to do is to be queer, but when it reflects to humans, it's not. And so how do we really reckon with those two dimensions to understand that we're both intertwined in our liberation and we're trying to really fight against these oppressive systems. And so the thing that I always say is like, you know, queer and trans communities are not burdens. They're, we're not pollutants. We are healers, lovers, and fighters. And I think this is really a lens for a lot of people in sustainability that are identified as queer and trans that may not think they have a relationship with the idea of existing because I think um, the idea of, of existence for queer and trans people is constantly threatened and interrogated by a heteronormative world. Wow. Well, first of all, thank you. That was so eloquent and complete. And I really liked what you mentioned about abundance and like seeking abundance, both within the human and non-human world. And this idea that inclusivity inherently will lead to a more abundant life for all creatures. It's mm -hmm. just such a, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Not necessarily, I mean, it's, it's wholesome is the immediate word that I want to hear, but it's also really liberating to realize that inclusivity will really be the path forward. Yeah, and I think that's one of the things um, I've realized too, like in a lot of environmental spaces, is that many of the ways that we approach land, right, research has always been used for the research acquisition, um, for land theft, to interrogate people. And so in terms of queer sustainability, it's more of this holistic value and relationship that one has always carried for so long. But due to this world, it's often attempted to erase those people or seen them as unvaluable and mark destinations or places as um, barren or not having anyone there. When in reality, we don't know to a queer and trans perspective, like what space was existing at that place, whether it was communities, whether it was culture thriving, that whether it was spirituality in those places. So these are kind of things that we explore outside of this world. Oh, yeah, I liked what you mentioned about native spaces and areas that were considering barren and inclusivity going one step beyond here. We're talking about queer sustainability, but one step beyond saying, okay, what does inclusivity look like if we are also considering the BIPOC narrative within the queer narrative? And like, how do we find these groups of communities that we know exist, but have not been fully recognized in our narrative of outdoor spaces? Yeah, no, definitely. And I think in terms of outdoor spaces, right, there is the legacy of that many national parks and recreational areas are built on indigenous communities, have displaced indigenous communities, that those communities still live in those areas, but have faced high rates of murder and violence. And so I think that for a lot of queer and trans communities being in these spaces, this is an aspect of a multidimensional space because in a Western world here in the United States and many colonized um, countries and what's happening now um, everywhere, it's really disappointing to see that we often view outdoor spaces as someone who's wearing Patagonia, someone who is white, someone who um, is often a male, cis, straight. And so these like disruptions of these narratives threaten heteronormativity because they say people like us shouldn't be talking about queerness, that we shouldn't be existing in these spaces, that we're ruining nature. And so in reality, the real people who have been ruining nature are the ones who have already separated nature and queer and trans people away from these communities. The fact that they have already made a distinguishment that they should not be a part of these communities is really to uphold colonial legacy. And so this obviously stems from Western conservation, right? So it's mindset to displace. So I think with queer and trans communities, it's yes, you are reconnecting in some ways to the land, but you are the land too. And so there's this intrinsic understanding that in trying to exist in this space to reclaim yourself, to reclaim that time, you also are threatened by external pollutants, which is 
people who are homophobic and transphobic and much more with violence and other tools. Wow. You have such a gift for metaphors and for making things (laughs) make sense. Thank you. No, that really means a lot to me. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Yeah, I mean, I would just say that, you know, for me, when I talk about what does it mean to be a queer environmentalist, right, I try to pick that notion out that I would wish that in the future, labels do not exist, right? We all understand that labels are social constructs. In our framing and understanding of our situation, the reason why we must be specific in the language, especially with queer sustainability, uh, whether we talk about Black liberation, like Black feminism, like this is very important that we use these terminologies to really describe because for so long in this world of science and research um, in history, especially colonial history, it has often erased opinions and views. And so we need to incorporate many of these um, different perspectives and dimensions from indigenous people, from um, black individuals, from different cultures uh, to approach these issues and to really constantly ask ourselves, like, how do we continually exist without labels while also building a more sustainable relationship with ourselves and planet? I like that. Thank you so much. I like the idea of sustainable relationships with yourself and with the land because the word sustainability, I keep saying this like in my professional life that it should be inherently to allow people to maintain their own solutions when it comes to the climate crisis. It's a matter of not being a handholder and something that they can actually sustain over time. And thinking about that in the perspective of your environmental identity is, is, is kind of the key to making sure that you're like living an abundant life moving forward. Definitely. Yeah, no. And I think that's what we're constantly exploring and this can obviously be used in so much, right? So you don't need to specifically be queer and trans either. Like the fact of our existences are constantly being interrogated police, whether it's your race, your class, your identity, your culture, like these are really aspects that queerness embodies too, because we already exist outside of these heteronormative worlds or what we say Western society's values, quote unquote, that is already threatening um, the quote unquote American dream. Emerald, welcome to the show. It's always good to chat with you. Thanks. I'm excited to talk with you today because like I was saying before we started recording, you are very likely my most evolved politically aware friend that has no problem telling people how it is, but in the most welcoming just way that you can. I love the way that you explain things and I love your viewpoint on things. So it's always such a treat to chat with you. Thank you for saying that and thinking that. Um, definitely working to maintain that. I can't say that everyone has the same viewpoint on <laughs> how I come across, but glad you think so. <laughs> no, of course, of course. I'm excited to speak with you, especially about the topic of LGBTQ plus communities and outdoor spaces or environmentalism, because I know you have both personal and professional backgrounds in the spaces. So I'd love to talk, first of all, about your upbringing, I suppose, or what got you invested in outdoor communities. Absolutely. So I was born in Montana in Bozeman, and my family didn't have a lot of money. So what you did was go for hikes. Um, So I grew up in the mountains and really began fostering my relationship with the land there. And then I was unfortunately moved to a very rural area on the East Coast where people hated the environment. No one I knew there liked hiking. And it was all just very confusing for me. Um, And all of my travels back and forth, visiting family in the West and the East really showed me how some spaces were protected, but not all, and how deeply connected environmental protection was to affluence. So that got me very interested in environmental justice. And so my background has moved from outright environmental sustainability, focusing like recycling on my campus to more intersectional views of housing assistance, indigenous rights, women in nature and feeling comfortable and things like that. So In my professional career, most recently, I worked on protecting public lands from oil and gas drilling. And it was amazing getting to work with local environmental groups because I was based in D.C. and also uh, native tribes 
and what they were focused on in terms of public lands. So it's been really cool working on different aspects. And then most recently I moved to Colorado and gotten a lot of, of opportunities to reconnect with public lands and the environment and really find my happy places here. Yeah. Well, I love that you mentioned that. First of all, I love that we're both in Colorado now and can spend all this time together rediscovering the outdoors, especially, um, especially having also most recently lived on the East coast. It's such a different life out here. And then beyond just hiking communities and communities that are reestablishing themselves in public spaces or finding their niche in these public spaces, you have also found quite a community in climbing. And I want to hear about that. Yes. So I began climbing consistently, officially about three years ago. I started in college and just took a class. I had done different climbing outings before that with my family, but never really knowing exactly what I was doing uh, or doing it consistently. And ever since I've joined, I've found such an inclusive community for the most part in terms of Everyone is very good about leave no trace. They care about environmental sustainability to some extent. And then I've also found since I've moved recently into Denver, an amazing queer community within the climbing community, which has been amazing because I was back in DC and we didn't really have that there. And so I felt like I was one of the few people that was out at my climbing gym. And now my climbing gym has like queer climb nights once a month. And they have little tags that everyone wears. So you can see like who else is in the community and people have rainbow chalk bags. And so I've made a big group of friends that way. And it's really beautiful to be in a place that I go to the gym like several days a week. And so no, I'm I'm always going to be entering a place that is welcoming has been beautiful. Yeah, I I love that. And I want to talk more because I feel like as someone on the outside of the climbing community, I'm not a climber. I've never gone climbing. I want to go to a gym with someone experienced like you. But I think also to paint the scene for someone when you are climbing in a gym, it is from what I understand, also very community based in that it is the same people going to the gym. You have this membership. You're all kind of relying on each other in your growth, in your skills, et cetera, it seems very people focused. So inclusivity seems to be kind of necessary in a sense to foster a healthy community. Absolutely. And I think that since there are so many regulars at climbing gyms and it's a pretty close community because like such a weird sport, we're just climbing up walls. Why would we do that? Few people want to do that. (laughs) So we all kind of look out for each other for the most part. Um, making sure that if someone's making another person uncomfortable, we'll go and have a conversation with that person. We'll report it to the staff. The staff will talk with them. So there have been instances where I haven't felt comfortable in my identity at the gym. And I have gone to other members or the staff and they like immediately fixed it and had a conversation and like reinforced inclusivity at the gym, which has been really nice that they like we'll go to bat for you and that doesn't always happen in the real world. And, you know, you can come out at work and some people may no longer want to work with you in the same way anymore, but at the climbing gym, like you have that community and they're going to care for you. And then within this inclusive climbing community, do you feel like that fuels inclusivity in other spaces in your life? Do you feel like inclusivity in a hiking community is different from within a climbing community because it's not as community-based or um, I suppose my question is just like what does inclusivity look like for you in other environmental spaces? Yeah absolutely I have come so far from where I was like our first conversation a few years ago on your podcast um, in terms of how my mind is open to inclusivity and the different intersections of environmentalism. And so much of that is based on finding that community and listening to the other members and hearing their stories and learning and unlearning so many things. And I really try to take that into every space I go into and making sure that I'm using inclusive language 
my friends are and also correcting in the kindest way possible when they aren't and living that inclusivity in every way possible. So if I hear conversations that might be um, talking negatively of a group or just not being as inclusive, I will say something to show that I care for that group or I'm like, they can do whatever they want. Like, I don't care if that's how they live their life. This is how I live my life. And I think that that helps to open other people's minds and create those more inclusive spaces. And yeah, I think it's, it's so tough with hiking because you come across people that are, you know, tourists or they're just there for a summer. But if I like am at a trail and I'm hiking next to the same people that I just met, or we're like at the same spot and end up talking, practicing that inclusivity with those conversations. And if they say something inappropriate, correcting them in whatever way possible while still maintaining my safety or just like simply like getting myself and others away from that group if we can't maintain our safety. But like finding like meetup groups that are hikers or on Bumble BFF and finding other hikers, you can definitely see that inclusivity is there. Um, people putting their pronouns in their bios or rainbow flags and yeah, knowing that you're safe there. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't even realize the value in putting your pronouns on your bio because to me it was just like a very progressive thing to do. And I was just like, well, this is just like how people want to be identified, but taking it one step further, like you were saying, you want to maintain your safety and you want to establish your personality in a space without feeling combative or feeling like you are putting yourself in a situation to to confront someone, I suppose, about their views. And just like you were saying earlier, just letting someone go on this idea of like, they're living their life that way and I'm living mine this way. Who cares? I think that's really, it sounds, it sounds like such a no-brainer, but it's like quite open-minded. Yeah, absolutely. And I come from, I have so much privilege. And so however I can use my privilege to make spaces more inclusive, I'm a cis woman and like putting my pronouns down makes it easier for a trans woman, another trans man to put their pronouns down or non-binary. Yeah, so I have two siblings who are non-binary and prefer they, them pronouns. And so like whatever I can do to help them, I will do. Right. Right. And I like what you also just mentioned about like, you have a lot of privilege, so you should be using it correctly and you should be using it to your best ability. And I just have a lot of admiration for that. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Izzy, good morning. I hope you're well. Uh, Before we get started, can you tell me where you're calling in from? Yeah. Hi, I'm calling in from Cardiff, South Wales, the UK. Um, Well, thank you for being here. Thanks for taking the time. I'm glad that we could chat because I was particularly impacted and impressed with the piece that you recently put out around who made my pride merch. And it's a piece that's gotten a lot of discussion online. And I'm really glad that you were able to bring my personal attention to it just on an individual consumer level. So I would love to talk to you a little bit about that. Do you mind giving me a bit of a synopsis? Yeah, so Who Made My Pride Merch is kind of in two parts. So it's based off Fashion Revolution's Who Made My Clothes. Um, And so the first half of it is asking, especially the bigger brands who are making lots of money off Pride merchandise, um, whilst not necessarily having um, transparent supply chains and all of that great stuff uh, is asking them who is making their pride merch and what they're doing specifically to help lgbt garment workers in their supply chains whilst profiting off of pride month and then the second half of it is about looking specifically at lgbt garment workers year round and um, there's very little research and information available about lgbt garment workers and what we do know is not great so that's about talking to um, organizations who work with garment workers and putting a bit of a spotlight on them as well. Could you expand a little bit on your comment that the very little research we do have around LGBTQ garment workers is not great? What do you mean by that? Does it just mean that the research is not as robust as you would like it to be or that the research 
shows us less than ideal conditions for these particular garment workers? So it's a bit of both, definitely. Um, so I was reading quite a lot of research papers on Hydra, um, people who'd been working in the garment industry. So Hydra is considered a sort of quote unquote third gender in Southeast Asia. Um, they've been recognized for thousands of years and are recognized in law, but a lot of Hydra garment workers really struggle to find work, um, to keep work and um, suffer with harassment, sexual harassment, bullying um, and often being pushed out of the workplace and also the research papers that I was reading specifically on hijra garment workers um, the they're misgendered or their pronouns are put in quotation marks and the way they're talked about is just generally not very nice I don't think it's quite clinical and it and I don't think it's the way that a lot of these people would like to be talked about so that's part of it specifically um, with hijra workers and then if you look in other parts of the world a lot of what you hear is about LGBT garment workers struggling to get work struggling to keep work and then within work if a lot of people within their workplace are fighting for better pay and better working conditions because LGBT garment workers are already more marginalized they find it a lot harder to actually stand up and fight for their rights um, because of the risk and the spotlight that that puts on themselves. Of course, of course. And I also think it's interesting that we have to have this conversation about garment workers, of course, all year long, but particularly during Pride Month, because Pride Month and Pride merch has kind of become an interesting subset of greenwashing, rainbow washing, that a lot of brands will attach themselves to for sake of bettering their public image. Oh, 100%. Yeah, you see all of these big brands talking about how much they support the community and donating X amount of profits or X amount of money to a um, LGBT charity and that in itself doesn't seem that bad right um, there's visibility there's charity there but at the same time when you look on their websites some of them will say oh it's made with sustainable cotton but then there's absolutely no information there about where the um, merch is being made who is making it and even if they're claiming to have like sustainable cotton or whatever, there's no information about where that's coming from and who's farming that. So there's so many gaps um, in information about these supply chains. And it's like, well, if you're supporting LGBT people in one part of the world, then you should be supporting them through your supply chain as well. Right, clearly. And is there perhaps a gauge or a guideline that you personally use to figure out if a company is truly putting their money where their mouth is, so to speak? I think for me, it's a bit of a spectrum. So I will go onto a website um, and I have a bit of a tick box in my head. There's a lot of things, um, but a lot of it is about looking on their sustainability or their um, sort of social responsibility pages they often have and looking there and seeing how much information there actually is because almost all the big brands will have this big long document or sometimes pages and pages where they state that they don't support modern day slavery and all of this sort of stuff but when you actually read through um and I'm not saying you have to do this on every website because once you get used to it you can kind of skim but if you actually read through it there's not actually much substance to what they're saying it's just pledges and promises and Whereas I tend to look for, if you're looking at more sustainable and ethical businesses, they can tell you where the clothes are being made. They can often tell you exactly who's making it. They'll tell you how much they're being paid, like their government workers are being paid. And all of these things, transparency isn't the end goal, but the more transparent a brand is, the more likely you are to be able to find information about their supply chains. And that's generally a better sign. Yes, I totally agree. I do the same thing where I try to find everyone's sustainability report as much as I can but it's also such a huge problem even within pride merch because inclusivity looks so different throughout the supply chain supply chains in general have so much nuance to them there are so many gaps that it's really hard to understand where the people fit in and where the social justice fits in throughout the entire supply chain Oh, 100%. I tend to support, try and support smaller brands during Pride Month, um, queer-owned brands, and even they won't be able to tell you everything that's going on in supply chains because 
it is quite complicated, especially for a small business. But what I look for is people being honest and saying these are the things that we're doing well and these are the things we want to improve on because I don't know I appreciate that honesty and it shows a strive to do better rather than just saying uh we're great buy our stuff you know exactly exactly my last question for you on the topic of figuring out what brands you can truly trust quote-unquote during pride month what does corporate allyship look like in your eyes (laughs) um to me corporate allyship isn't really allyship I would say because a lot of what corporations do is very performative it's look at us doing amazing things for the community for example um Zara bought out some pride merch I believe um while at the same time one of their trans workers in the U.S. was suing them for discrimination and so unless Um, corporations are truly working not only in their supply chains on the other side of the world but within um, their businesses if they're selling in the UK or the US there as well then they're not truly allies because they need to actually work on their own am I allowed to swear (laughs) (laughs) sure if that's what you feel called they need to work on their own shit you know yeah (laughs) A hundred percent. hundred percent. Well, it's also interesting that corporate allyship is a word that I probably shouldn't put together on my own, but it's one that I want to believe because it's Pride Month and the whole point of Pride merch is allyship. But it's also, like you were saying, kind of a bit of an empty promise in a lot of cases, especially if you're looking at the entire supply chain. So when you are buying Pride merch, you were saying you're buying from smaller brands, queer owned brands. What are some brands that you look out for throughout the year oh I don't really know I made like a um, blog post a couple of years ago because I haven't actually bought pride merch well I kind of have one of my friends made me a t-shirt the other week because I was like I want this on a t-shirt and she was like yeah so stuff like that also making your own I've been doing a lot of upcycling so quite a few of my sort of quote-unquote pride t-shirts now are stuff that I've embroidered on t-shirts I already own um but yeah um there are quite a lot of lists out there. I have one on my website um, and I know a lot of people have been making them and tagging them who made my pride merch. There are definitely a lot of sustainable brands out there if you keep your eyes open. Right, right. Well, the last question I'm going to ask you, Izzy, I don't want to take up too, too much of your time and respect it, but could you talk to me a little bit about this intersection of sustainability, of pride, of respect for garment workers and the fashion conversation Because the more that we're talking, and especially after reading your article, I feel like this is a intersection of the sustainability conversation that we don't hear about very often. We don't often hear about it outside of Pride Month. What does truly inclusive Pride merch and sustainability mean to you? I mean, I think it's about like, continually doing the work especially when it comes to big corporations because they will slap a label on it slap a green label on it slap a rainbow on it and be like look at us doing doing the thing um doing the good thing whereas to me actually working on those things means like continuing to do the work because I don't think people often ask in sustainability when I've talked about it in other contexts like museums or whatever what is the end when can we say look we're sustainable now and I don't think that there is an end to that because we're constantly learning we're constantly trying to do better and so I think that's part of it is looking at the whole supply chain genuinely doing things that better people and the planet even if that's not the best thing for profit because let's be real most of the time it's not the best thing for profit and changing the system so that it's not about quantity and making billionaire CEOs but it's about making clothes that people want um whilst genuinely supporting a community throughout the supply chain along with like the surface level LGBT inclusivity within corporations um I think it's important to remember as well how diverse the LGBT community is and unless they're also working on things like anti-racism and accessibility then they're not really here for the LGBT community because a lot of the time when people think of the LGBT community it's middle class generally cis white gays and that is who these markets are catering to and that is who these pride merch are often made for um and I mean we're seeing more diversity in advertising but that 
often doesn't filter through to the actual management within these brands. And so I think it's important to note that unless you're doing things that actually cater to the whole community or work towards helping the whole community, especially the most marginalized, then you're not really doing the work. Wow. Yeah, that's an excellent point. Thank you so much for sharing that. I think that even on an individual level, there is this sense that you can, I mean, maybe this is a human thing, but you can always put someone in a box. And that's actually the opposite of what you should be doing during Pride Month, that there's not really one community you should be catering towards. There's a lot of people and there's a lot of unlearning to continually do to truly be evolving as an ally. Yeah. And when we talk about intersections, like often it's sustainability and LGBT, but within the LGBT community, so many people have so many different intersections. And so I think it's about taking that into account. And obviously you can't do all of it all at once, but it's about, I guess, unpicking. And as you said, unlearning and rebuilding systems that work, not just for certain people, but for everyone. Jackson, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Where are you calling from? I am in Rogers, Arkansas. Love it. Well, thank you so much for taking the time today to talk to me a little bit about your LGBTQ plus experiences in environmentalism. I think this is going to be a really interesting episode because it seems like everyone has different perspectives on it. And I know that you have a little bit of a plan of what you'd like to share. So I want to just start off with a really blanket question of inclusivity. What does inclusion mean to you? Yeah, so inclusion to me just means being able to be entirely myself without the fear of judgment or the fear of attack. It means being included just like anybody else, um, disregard to my sexual orientation um, and kind of getting rid of just general unconscious bias. I appreciate that. Unconscious bias is a really interesting hurdle that I think a lot of people are starting to come to terms with and really reckon within themselves. And even within the environmental movement, there are a lot of biases that already exist. So I was hoping that we could talk a little bit about that. What does inclusion mean to you in the environmental space more specifically? So the environment is something that I love because it it extends beyond all borders, metaphorical or literal. You know, everybody lives in the environment. It's something that every single person deserves to have a clean version of. Um, And I think that when we begin to decide who deserves what, we begin to hurt one another and we begin to draw borders that take a long time to heal things like the general kind of um, environmental racism you see with our BIPOC community um, as well as denying people access to certain spaces there's a there's a lot of issues with um, kind of where we are I appreciate you shedding light on that. And I think it's also really interesting. I didn't ask you at the top of the episode your age, but you are high school aged. And I I think being 17 in this day and age is interesting because we do see a lot of awareness in younger populations as opposed to like, I'm only 25, but there is still a big unconscious bias conversation of dismantling any of these structures within people of my age group, much less people that are older than me. So I think also within the environmental space and inclusion and your age group, there must be an interesting intersection of how you do or do not feel like you have to kind of prove yourself as a part of this larger community. Yeah. So interestingly enough, I have never actually experienced real homophobia to my face. And being in Arkansas, I think that that's something that I've been extremely, extremely fortunate um, in, but there's still a lot of general expectations that get heightened for me. So I am a co-founder of an organization called E-Waste Warriors, um, and we help just plan events so that local community members can drop off old electronics because it's something a lot of people don't understand. 
but as I was doing this um, with Abigail, who's my one of my good friends, I realized that I was trying to make sure that the first thing that came across was not sounding gay, which is kind of disappointing because even though it's stereotypical, I won't pretend like we don't talk different sometimes. Um, and so when I'm writing emails or I'm discussing with other people some connections that I could make or things that I could try to do, I found myself trying to tamp it down um, and bring out other like more inviting and less confrontation inducing sides of me, like my academic lifestyle or my interest in an environmental career, um, instead of trying to bring all of me at once because I didn't want to scare people away. Interesting. Interesting. Does this tie into what you understand as stereotypes of the gay community? Do you feel like you're actively having to combat stereotypes? I do and I don't. There, it's, it's a really interesting thing because for a long time, there are parts of gay culture that are really important. Things like drag. And for a long time, we used fashion to, and we still do, we still use fashion to help um, promote equality and um but it, it after a certain point it became like it had to be that way like when you were gay you had to love fashion and you had to love design and you probably watch all of RuPaul's drag um and so now when I begin to do things it's half of me I do enjoy fashion but I don't want it to be oh hey that's Jackson he's gay I don't want that to be my defining personality right. type, but then it feels as though I'm being untrue to myself and be like, well, why shouldn't it be my, you know, I'm proud. I'm out. It's all right. And it's this weird combat between things that we use to further our agenda and have kind of become tricky sand traps for us now. Interesting. Interesting that you have this, kind of internal conversation with yourself of how do I both accept and keep my arms distance from these stereotypes that yes, I participate in a lot of these cultural experiences of the gay community, but I also don't always want to be defined by them. And I think that that conversation must be also quite interesting in the environmental space. Like you were saying that you actively try to establish yourself as an environmental professional or establish that you have environmental career goals and have that kind of siloed from your gay culture identity that you are already participating in. Does that sound correct or am I projecting onto you? No, that sounds just about right. <laughs> Talk to me a little bit about what that intersection means for you moving forward. Like what are your goals on a personal level for how you interact with both gay culture and environmental spaces. Yeah, so right now it's really interesting because we've seen a lot of movement for LGBTQ plus um, rights in history, but we haven't seen as much out before we reach our careers. So. I'm already out, of course. I came out probably back in eighth or seventh grade. Um, and so there's, there's this kind of rising level of professionals that are also gay. And it becomes kind of this narrow walkway between ensuring that you get a job with people you're going to be comfortable with, that you don't come on too strong because you can scare people away. There's a lot of um, trying to be really careful, especially here in Arkansas, um, where it's not illegal to discriminate in employment based on sexual orientation or gender identity. Um, and it becomes kind of awkward to navigate. But because of that, I'm really excited because I'm going into, or I hope to go into a STEM field. Um, and I just so happen to be gay. And I enjoy science and renewable technologies and sustainability. Um, but I want to still provide an inspiration to other people that are struggling without bending into all of the stereotypes as well. 
Yeah. I appreciate that. Thank you so much for sharing that. That's really, really insightful. There was a part of me that while you were discussing that, first of all, I'm shocked that there is still not federal legislation about discrimination in the workplace on sexual orientation. I truly cannot believe that we're still combating this in so many American states. But on the flip side, it's also interesting to think that there's this sense of almost tokenism where you're saying, I'm going into a STEM field, I'm a STEM professional, I want to be in a space where I'm comfortable, but I'm not here to be the only like out and proud expectation that you have for your friend group or for your community or your career field or whatever it is. Like this should be a part of your identity that's, while it's important to you, it shouldn't be the sole driving factor in all of these other spaces. Absolutely. Interesting. Interesting. Well, Jackson, thank you so, so much for joining me. This has been really interesting and insightful and a short period of time. Do you have anything else that you want to share that you didn't get to today? If you ever have somebody come out to you and they seem like they were afraid, make sure the first thing you do is tell them that you still love them, but also that no matter what you would love them. Because oftentimes, like I said, it becomes such an important thing since it's under so much conflict all the time. Um, And I think that things will get lost and you'll lose pieces of somebody that you didn't want to lose because you didn't make sure to reinforce that you love every part of them. Thanks so much for tuning in to today's episode of Eco Chic. I hope you enjoyed today's Chic Chats episode all about pride and the environmental space. Like I said at the top of the episode, this is one that I loved putting together and I felt like it was so jam-packed with value and perspectives and empathy and just guidance on allyship for all of us. So thanks again for tuning in. Thank you again to all of our speakers. It is such a privilege to speak with all of them, but also to be able to share it with a larger audience. I hope you appreciated it. I hope you enjoyed it. I can't wait to hear your thoughts. Like I said at the top of the episode, you can always find me on social. All my links are in the show notes. And if you've made it this far, rate and review the show, follow it on Spotify, et cetera, et cetera. You've heard me say it all before. So with that, I hope you have a fabulous day. I hope you are doing well. Say hi to your mom for me. It's so nice to see you here again today. And uh, I'll talk to you next week. Bye. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.